Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 Insights podcast. Thanks for listening. My name is Daniel Grioli and I'm the Market Fox columnist for i3 Insights. I'd like to give a big thank you to our steadily growing group of listeners. We really enjoy your comments and feedback and we love it when you get in touch. Please feel free to get in touch with us by using the contact form on the i3 website. That's wwwi 3 hyphen invest forward slash contact. You can also follow us on Twitter at i3invest and at market underscore fox. Today I'm joined by Sue Brake. She is the head of strategic advisory at Willis Towers Watson here in Sydney, Australia. Sue is also an external expert on investment management for the International Monetary Fund, where she worked with a number of sovereign wealth funds. And before that, she was an early member of the New Zealand Superfund, where she was instrumental in designing the fund's asset allocation, illiquidity and currency frameworks. Sue joined Willis Towers Watson's Sydney office just over a year and a half ago, where her focus is on governance, organisational design, decision making and total portfolio construction. As readers of my column know, I'm not a huge fan of the investment consulting business. We'll post some links in the show notes of some articles that I've written about consultants in the past. Sue is a friend, and she's very graciously given me permission to ask her some tough questions about the investment consulting business. So without any more introduction, let's get started. Sue, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So we generally begin with a little bit about our guests and their background. And what got you interested in investing? Uh, relatively late in my career. I've had two careers, one in banking uh, and capital markets, and I was at the New Zealand Super Fund helping them with the currency framework, which was my expertise. And I'd see these people disappear into one of the rooms speaking very passionately about all things asset allocation, and then they'd come out still speaking absolutely passionately. Uh, I had been contracting to the fund while I had babies, and decided I wanted to join permanently and they looked at a number of roles for me that suited that background that I had but I kept despite the seniority of the role saying you know can I have that job I really want to do that job and eventually I got okay then and so very luckily for me they allowed me to switch careers uh, at a fairly old age I can't think of a a better word Um, and I'm eternally thankful for it I just I adore this industry and wouldn't want to be anywhere else. So we'll get into your background in capital markets and investments a little bit later on, but just asking at this early stage of the interview, what do you think would be the biggest differences and similarities between what you did on the banking side and what you now do with investing? I think the biggest difference, and there's lots of differences, um, but the biggest one would be that the what I did in banking was about and this may be the time difference, this might not just be the industry difference, was really about being smart. It was about designing clever derivative structures that did mathematically genius things. Um, Not that I'm saying I'm a genius, but it was just, I really want to emphasize it was about being smart. And at this stage of my career, 
in journey in life. Um, it's not about being smart. It's about um, effective decision making and being aware of other people and, and, and understanding the humanity of the investment decision making process. It's not a mathematical equation. It's not about being smart. There's, an, there's a minimum standard, but it's not actually about being smart. And that's been a, you know, a huge wake up for me along this journey. Mm-hmm. Your comments remind me of a Buffett quote that uh, I think it goes something along the lines of if you have more than a certain amount of IQ, you're better off selling that for character because (laughs) character and temperament uh, can sometimes be more important. And it it sounds like you've come to a similar realisation. I have, and a thick skull. It took me a long time because my identity was so tied in with being smart. That's who I was, that went through school well. I did I did well at university. I got a Canterbury Prize that put me in the top ten graduates, and it meant that you know, actually, an artificial intelligence in those days, and I ended up in banking. But anyway, so it was just so I did, really didn't want to let it go. So it did take me much longer than most, I think, to realise that that's that's not how I can contribute and and um, and have a fulfilling career. Was there? Was there one or, or two events that really drove home that realisation? I think it was probably more gradual. I think um, I remember writing things down early in my career about what what is life about, those questions you get. And it was always, you know, being the best, be, getting better, you know, that very self-focused. Um, I do recall going on an executive uh retreat where I had someone follow me around for with a clipboard for a, a period of a number of days which when they put you under a lot of pressure with the things they're making you do on these retreats I soon forgot and to my detriment um, because he really <laughs> he really went to town on me by the end of the session about how I treated other people and how I seemed to be oblivious and I grew up in a family where we all gambled and it was always about winning graciously we weren't mm. nasty but the you know it's about winning, and it it just took me a while to get that out of my system and realise that there is no winning. Um, so yeah, a, a, f- a few pokes along the way to kind of put me on the right path. Okay, I think we all need reminders, don't we? Yeah. I know I've had my share. So you mentioned earlier that you started on the banking side of the business, and you worked in capital markets uh, with derivatives trading and risk management. How did you get started there? Was it linked back to that? early academic success? I think, um, this is not going to put me in a good light, but the truth is I, I ran out of money. I wanted to go to an Ivy League school and study artificial intelligence. I um, decided I needed to work for a year and make some money, and the first job I took happened to be in the same location as my boyfriend. Um, so I chose it on that basis, <laughs> absolutely honestly. But as soon as I walked into the dealing room, I think that that would capture the heart of any 22-year-old. I mean, it just, um, it's so exciting. And I, I remember sitting in, in the back room with the whiteboard with my boss, who I thought was a genius, explaining to me the way markets worked. And I had been at university for so long and I couldn't believe that someone was willing to pay me to teach me this material, which I found so much more engaging than a lot of the material that I did at university. So I you know, really did identify with the masters of the universe thing and thought I had the best job on the planet for, for the first five years of my career. Mm-hmm. It's refreshing to hear you say how your entry into the industry sort of evolved because so many people seem to approach life as if they're having a a five-year plan and a ten-year plan and all these milestones they're trying to reach along the way where often the driving force is 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 far simpler or more serendipitous such as I needed a job and it was close to where I lived uh, it's it's interesting to hear you admit that because not many people will actually say that they're more likely to say well you know I had it all planned and it was meant to be this way Luck is an incredible part of our business, isn't it? Uh, and I really relate to that, that statement that you hear about embracing the mess. And it took me a long time to figure this one out as well. It, you know, there's not a straight line from where you are now to being president and CEO. It's, a, it's an evolution through lots of paths and learning. And, and the more diverse that is, the better. You know, so I'm in, I'm in no hurry and enjoying the journey. And again, it took me a while to, to get to that point. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so you're you're now a bona fide master of the universe. <laughs> no, not anymore. Used to be. <laughs> well, used to be. You're on the desk trading up a storm. What three key risk management lessons did you learn during that period of your career? I think that this is one of these essential lessons for everybody in their career, really, because the markets don't take prisoners. So you start off as a brash young thing who thinks that um, you're pretty talented and and that will win the day and you know you get your butt kicked and I think that's a really good lesson to sort of have that respect for the for the market and the longer you're in the markets the more you understand that humility is a large part of being good and 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 being thoughtful so those lessons are great and very acute and very instant um, in, in those kinds of environments so I would say that was probably the the, the, the biggest one um, you, you put it far more eloquently than one of my co-workers uh, in, in the past who used to trade rates for a bank and he described it as uh, until you've lost that much money for the, for the bank that you feel like you need to throw up in your waste paper basket, you don't understand mm. risk. Mm. I agree and I, that kind of brings me to another, another lesson that I learned and that is that errors are a failure in process, not a failure in people and I... I do recall an occasion, the same boss that I, I thought walked on water. I'd made an error in pricing a new derivative that I'd developed. Um, I was so young. And I took it home because I just couldn't bring myself to tell him and I mulled on it and it just wouldn't go away. I had made this error and I had to acknowledge it. The classic using um, yen-like points, they're adding them to other basis points and not realising that I was a factor of a thousand out. Um, and so I had mispriced this by a material sum of money. And I stood behind my boss's desk, uh, about to come clean. And he didn't even look up or turn around. He just said, how much? <laughs> and I told him the number. And he went, shit happens. You may have to edit that out. But something equivalent. <laughs> and, um, and I went away feeling better. You know, it, it is really about the fact that you have to have a good process because people make mistakes. That's just a fact of life. So that's another really good lesson from that very quick pace. Your mistakes get thrown back at you pretty pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, and what was the third lesson? I think it ties back to that um, that being smart thing, that it's, you know, it's being smart is great, but it's not going to, you know, get you the whole way. It's, it's really about being curious and humble, but still certain. You can't be uncertain because you'll, you'll get whipsawed, mm -hmm. but you need to have that humility, and that's a... Um, that's hard one. That really is. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like that was a valuable experience, and you, you almost when he want to be master of the universe in one end, and came out quite a different person by the sounds of things. I think so. I think so. So after your time in the banking world, you you had a decent stint self-employed. Tell us about the company that you founded and and why you decided to work for yourself. I think. Um and again, maybe serendipity, or you know, the the universe delivers us lessons when we need to we need to hear them. I had a great job. I was here in Australia. Um, I thought I was going to have a baby and then head back to work after six months and met my daughter and changed my mind <laughs> on the spot. Um, so I, uh, you know, lucky enough to be wealthy enough to go. You know, let's just. Um, take some time and think about this, but I'm also my own worst enemy, so as soon as the space was created, I kind of filled it with a few things. Um, all which came to me, actually, which was t terrific. I didn't mm. ever need, need the pressure to go out. So in there was a couple of companies. One we started, um, I had bought a beach section that had an olive grove on it many years before, and it had gotten to the point where I really needed to do something about uh, that so we started a gourmet food company, which was great to get involved in all the startup aspects of a company. And we ended up getting to a point where we had the interest of um, some uh, online and and on TV um, marketing operations. And I realised that I needed to get serious or get out. We needed to start thinking about factory production of some of the the gourmet items and you know larger investors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that was the point where I realised that there wasn't room for that many babies in my life. I had my two children and, and I understood firsthand how you really need to put that first and I wasn't prepared to do that. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was actually at that point that I'd been doing some consulting for New Zealand Super and made the decision that that was a great company and I really wanted to to work for them. So, you know, I moved on from that. There was another one that I got asked to join that I, I absolutely loved as well. It was an eco-cleaning product company, so bought a, a stake of that and, and helped run that for a period of time as well, which was fascinating. But again, fortuitously for me, sold both in 2007, so you know, managed to walk away mm-hmm. um, with a plus sign. Um, but yeah, it's a great experience. Mm-hmm. Sounds, sounds like a lot of fun. So what were some of the most difficult aspects of being self-employed and how did you deal with them? It's obviously quite different to the hustle and bustle of a trading desk. Yeah, I don't know that I've found anything particularly difficult. I think if I I cast for some lessons from that period, probably the the lesson was uh, being on that boards of those small companies, one was a decent size, and understanding that the strategy you were following was only, let's say, a third of the journey, and the rest was getting everybody in behind it, and the issues that we had at the board level really destroyed the value of those early those startup companies. It's just absolutely crucial that you get collective buy-in to things. I think that was probably where that lesson came from. Um, and, and, you know, extricating myself from that, you know, position ended up being, you know, selling, selling my share. Um, so I think, you know, there's, as I say, valuable lessons in all of these various things that we try. So mm-hmm. that... That probably carries through now to my consulting so yeah well that's right we'll, we'll talk a bit later on about the work that you do with governance and committees and boards you mentioned uh, when talking about your time uh, in self-employment that it eventually led on to a consulting role with New Zealand super which then became a full-time job what is it that you did at New Zealand super and we know this is very early on in the beginning of New Zealand Super, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about what New Zealand Super was like at the time as well. Sure, I'll rattle through it relatively quickly. I, I was there in the early um, time uh, contracting to them to help them, and I think I was employee number three. So we were doing everything. It was um, incredibly stressful. Uh, the great Paul Costello was there, um, and I think he told me once that his lesson from that was to try and do, do less. We just took way too much on in terms of trying to employ a large number of managers and there just would have been, with some experience, an easier way to do that. Um, so my key responsibilities were the um, portfolio completion aspects of it. How do we transition to market? How do we um, uh, do our currency given we're such a large part of the, the New, Zealand, um, New Zealand dollar market? Um, how do we think about liquidity, those sorts of things. And so I did a few different stints um, building up various parts of those mm-hmm. frameworks uh, until that moment I talked about where, you know, I really I really fell in love with the investing side of it and uh, got a great job um, as a um, senior investment strategist, which is basically an asset allocation role, um, helped run the strategic tilting program for a while, uh, and, and really focused on building frameworks for things, the risk budgeting framework, the um, illiquidity framework, how we thought about currency from a strategic perspective, the reference portfolio, all, all those bits um, were, were part of my remit. Mm-hmm. You used a very interesting word there, and it happens to be one I use a lot too, and that's framework. And I think frameworks are very helpful um, because they... They help you answer investment questions, which most questions in investments, the answer is it all depends. And so you need a framework to figure out what it depends on and and therefore what you should do given the attributes of what you're looking at and the circumstances. I'm interested to know why you find frameworks to be so helpful. I think they're a really key uh, governance tool. So it's about splitting the difference between setting up how you're going to make the decision and making the decision. So there's um, a lot of thought that goes into making sure that decision-making is consistent and robust and collaborative. And then there's actually driving that framework and making the decision. And I think that those are really important distinctions. I'm also a massive uh, fan of frameworks, and I think that they're a great 
um, way of ensuring boards don't get stuck in the weeds because their job is to have a strategic conversation about the framework. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, given organisations are large enough to have, um, you know, further degrees of separation, rather than actually making the decision about what manager you're going to hire. Um, and those are really valuable conversations because they give the executive uh, the opportunity to really get pushback on how they're thinking about decisions, what the investment beliefs are, what the assumptions are that they may not have seen. It's a, um, you know, it's an essential process really for me. It's it's very interesting. I've I've come to realise um, recently in using my own frameworks that they have another underappreciated attribute, and that is they make it easier to communicate bad news. Because if you agree on the framework and you agree on the basis for it, then when things happen, and inevitably things happen in markets that you don't anticipate, then you go back to the framework and say, well, you know, we're evaluating it based on these criteria, this way of thinking. This is what we agreed is the right thing to do. This is how we're going to manage it. And I think it makes dealing with bad news a lot easier because I, you've got a plan. I, I totally agree. So one is, is that that pre-mortem to sort of think about it in advance so you kind of go, well, we knew this could happen. But the other one that's interesting, and, and it's a story that's came out in the um, IMF work that I do, um, I work with an individual who was uh, instrumental in setting up the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. And we both had a similar story around what happened during the global financial crisis. And the um, massive losses that most funds suffered were all expected and understood, not liked of course, but that's what you expected. But both portfolios had these market neutral funds that were sold on the basis that they don't go down when the rest of the market went down. And they were a small piece of the loss, but that was where all the focus was because that was the bit where the framework and the um, pre-mortem had had let us down. Mm -hmm. So yeah, absolutely. Okay. So interested to hear your comments on governance and New Zealand super because as you describe it you were there at the very beginning you took a lot on in trying to get the fund uh, established as one of a a group of a a very small team how did you ensure that all of the key parties involved the government the guardians of the fund the investment team the managers how did you set it up so that you were all on the same page and how did you go about building the right kind of culture? I don't know that it was... Um, I was Paul Costello. I'm going to say that it didn't feel like that it was all planned out. It was really just a matter of hands on deck and, and, and getting this thing up and running. So it was probably 2007 when Adrian Orr arrived as the CEO that you know the focus really became on... Um, a phenomenal comms department to make sure that the messaging went out in the right way and a, a, a really good, robust interface between the board and the executive on each of these decisions. And, and it was that time too that we decided to go down the reference portfolio route as a, uh, a key governance tool to, to sort of say to the board, you own this bit and our job is to, to as executive is to add value to it. So I think, uh, uh, you know, it was part of the evolution anyway, but probably coincided with um, with Adrian's appearance. Okay. Maybe for our listeners, you might be able to just explain a little bit on this, uh, explain what the reference portfolio is and, uh, and how it works. The reference portfolio, it's a very, very simple um, construct, so pretty easy to look past its power because it is so simple. Um, it, it is basically the most liquid and most investment decision light portfolio that you could put together to meet an objective of a fund. Now, it's not going to fully meet the objective because you can always do better than a reference portfolio, but it requires you to have um, assumptions and beliefs and, and, and skill um, and experience. So it is a useful governance tool by allowing people that are further removed from the day-to-day hustle and bustle of the markets to say, this is the kind of portfolio that we're talking about that would meet the objective. This is a way of encapsulating um, what I think are acceptable drawdowns, um, the right kind of um, growth versus defensive split, 
um, that characterises me as a, as a governor, what, what I think makes sense. And then becomes this really useful benchmark for the executive to say, great, you've made that decision, our job now is to make sure that we build something even better. So there's some, you know, freebies in there in terms of the liquidity premium is not in the reference portfolio, so that's an obvious thing that you could bring in. Any return to complexity, you know, all those sorts of things. But it makes you very thoughtful as you add each of those components um, as to, you know, what are they bringing and is it worthwhile because you're starting from this very simple base. Um, so there's been a, a growing number of funds that are, are using the reference portfolio in a variety of different ways um, and always thoughtfully. It's not a um, sort of a set and forget kind of thing. You want to make sure you have those great conversations. Uh, not particularly popular here in the Australian market. Mm. but. Um, yeah, I've, I've had some interesting Twitter debates about reference portfolios with people. And one that I've used simply because it's easily available and uh, meets all those criteria, it's liquid, transparent, low cost, is Vanguard has a range of multi-asset ETFs. The investment management cost is 27 basis points. And if you compare the after-tax returns, assuming a 15% tax rate, for those Vanguard, uh, say, 70-30 funds, I think it's the Vanguard Growth Fund, it beats most superannuation funds mm -hmm. in the country, in, in Australia. So that's a very simple reference portfolio that anybody could buy from an online broker that um, largely does a better job, and it doesn't have any of those free kicks that you mentioned. It doesn't have the illiquidity premium. Um, it's not loaded with... Uh, exotic asset classes like catastrophe bonds or hedge funds or emerging market debt, um, and yet it's done quite well for all of its simplicity and, um, and, and, and low cost. Yeah, and I, I think the thing we'd say about the reference portfolio is it is primarily a governance tool. It can show you the value of good governance versus poor governance and so there'll be some great things happening, some alpha being picked up and then some knee-jerk reaction or change in personnel or change in um, uh, direction will make you sell out of one particular strategy and go to another so there's not this, you know, and those are the things that end up destroying value for a period of time and then you might, you know, the people things, the, yeah. the, the reality. So the reference portfolio becomes something that keeps you honest about what value on all of the things that you're doing that you're really bringing to the portfolio. And one of the th things that we say at Willis Towers Watson is, you know, match your investment strategy to your governance. It's absolutely imperative. So if you have aspirations for a really complex portfolio, you need to make sure that you've invested in the governance that can, um, that can deliver that. Otherwise, you're going to end up destroying value. We had an earlier podcast guest... Uh, Bob Maynard, who's the CIO at Percy, uh, the Idaho Pension Fund, and he used a phrase, he said, you can't outrun your supply lines. And he was talking about that very thing, that you, you've got to be conscious not just of whether or not you can win the fight, but whether or not you can you know, resource the fight, um, which, which I guess is, is what you're saying. So at New Zealand Super, one of the things you were involved with was currency, and Tell our listeners why currency matters from the perspective of a, a New Zealand or an Australian investor, because many investors, uh, particularly in other countries like the US, often don't pay much attention to currency because mm. they're in a very different situation to us here. I, I agree. And uh, it has been my personal experience from those early days in the markets and being very focused on currency. And I'd go across to New York to some great... Um, conference on currency and I would be surprised at how um, non-advanced or, or simple those conferences were. I think that in Australia and New Zealand we put a great deal of focus on the currency because it is, you know, particularly in New Zealand's case, a small open economy and the, and the currency really does have an impact. So there's a lot of thinking um, that goes into getting that, into getting that right. Um, from New Zealand Super they projected from the reference portfolio concept uh, a position for the reference portfolio that made sense that again would be a simplistic sensible uh, decision um, and then 
the executive would look at what value they could add by making a different decision. Mm. Um, so it made it, it pretty simple and pretty easy to make those calls. Yeah. I, I remember doing some work where I looked at um, the impact of the Aussie dollar on a typical balance portfolio. And there are some years, I'm thinking back to a period in 2015, where the Aussie dollar fell from north of one dollar to, um, I think, to about 80, 80 odd cents in a fairly short period of time. And that impact, that currency impact, um, was, uh, it accounted for about three quarters of every Australian balance fund return. It dwarfed everything else. So you get, you get these periods where currency can literally either make or break you on a, a three to five year return basis if you're on the wrong side of one of these moves. So it's, it's something that investors in the US being the, the world's reserve currency and 60% you know, of equity market being in the US, they don't have to think about it as mm. much. Yeah, I think the, the key to the currency decisions are to get really clear the basis for the currency risk um, and the horizon for that currency risk and the amount of risk you take against that particular view and what beliefs it's centred on and whether the confidence you can have in those views justifies the amount of risk that you take in those views. So, uh, you know, frameworks and, and the reference portfolio helps um, to sort of get really, really clear. Um, but I think in that instance, it's, it's, it's mostly horizon uh, mm -hmm. and just, you know, being aware that over shorter periods of time, it's, it's volatile. Mm -hmm. So we had a previous guest on the podcast, Dr. Jack Gray, and uh, one of the comments that he made was that New Zealand Super had a big advantage because nobody gives up, can't say the word, about New Zealand. Is being far away from New York, London, Paris, Tokyo a positive or a negative for, for an investment organisation? Uh, you know, our initial assumption was that it was going to be a negative, um, being so far away. Um, what we didn't realize was just how much it was going to punch above its weight and the fact that we would have all these people beating a track to the door so it, it it you know it didn't seem to matter so much about that distance and I think the world's getting smaller anyway so it's probably less about that I think that the not giving it insert word um, about it is probably um, there's probably something in that. There's an, another interesting comparison between the New Zealand Super Fund and the Norwegian Fund, where the Norwegians, they're like opposite ends of the spectrum. The Norwegians spent an inordinate amount of time doing very simple things and moved to complexity, are still moving to complexity. They're moving very slowly and very um, thoughtfully. And I think their, um, their view on this was that they were bringing the whole country along with them on this journey because it's uh, a large sovereign wealth fund that everybody has a, a large vested interest in. Um, so this was the, 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 the journey that made sense for them. New Zealand super is only a small portion of the, um, the superannuation liabilities was sort of set up on the basis that here's a pool of money get as big a return as you can without taking too much risk and then give it back to us. Um, it, was, it was kind of the uh, interpretation of the mandate that was then fed back to the, the Treasury. So it had a very different approach where it, um, it its, its job was to maximise return. It's written in its legislation. Um, so it embraced the complexity. Um, it, um, it had a great communications department, but, you know, investing is... A professional activity and it's a limit to how much you can get people to truly understand all of the different aspects of it. It's, you know, Bob Mertens calls it, the, you know, brain surgery where, you know, you're not a car mechanic that may tinker around on your own car, you, you're not going to do brain surgery on your own. So at some level there's an element of trust in investing and transparency is, is New Zealand Super's calling card to make sure that it gets that trust. But it does make you think that at some level um, there's some risk there because the population doesn't fully understand the um, risk of that portfolio and the potential for extended periods of underperformance. So it's had a wonderful period, obviously, where it's outperformed over an extended period. 
and everyone's going, yeah, yeah, whenever the, the chairperson or the CEO says, you know, we're due for a period where it's going to go down for a while, and everyone's, yeah, 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 and they've kind of forgotten that it can. So there's some risk around that in terms of not having taken everyone along on that journey and keeping it simple. And it's, again, about the... It's, I'm not saying it's not been the right decision, I'm just saying it's a different decision. Um, but it's again about it, just making sure that the strategy fits the governance. I think that's going to be a key theme of our conversation, I've got a feeling Yes. That. So coming back to your background, and you mentioned that you spent some time also at the IMF, and we were chatting earlier, you said you still do some work with the IMF, so there are some restrictions about what we can talk about. But in terms of broad themes, what are the sort of things that you did with the IMF and, and still do? Broad themes. Um, so there was um, a benefactor that put aside some money um, and said to the IMF, please put together a team of experts on uh, resource-based sovereign wealth funds and visit as many countries as you can to help them get on a path to sustainable wealth, um, which is a fabulous um, brief. Uh, they, the IMF approached the New Zealand Superfund again because it was punching above its weight and uh, the mandate fell on my desk, which I'm eternally grateful for. It's just so incredibly interesting. Um, and my brief was the investment management. There was another member of the fund who was the governance expert, but we all you know, and I love that environment where there's that collaborative, uh, on the ground, you know, talking to all the stakeholders, meeting with the central bank governor and the finance minister and, and, and other uh, lobbyists and, and, and politicians and figuring out what the issues were that were stopping um, whatever their aspirations were from, from coming to fruition. So it varied greatly depending on how mature the fund was, whether it was in the early days we've written... Um, uh, sort of a sovereign wealth fund law to, to establish a fund through to one that was very large and very mature and just talked about some of their practices, particularly around frameworks and governance. Um, and, you know, I got to go to some very far-flung and interesting places, which is a, a treat in its own right, really, just to, to be somewhere different and, and see different cultures in action and different political systems in action. It's very... Um, it, 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 completely fascinating work and, and a, a privilege to be part of the IMF team, it would be headline creating news when we were in town and the respect that comes with that role meant that, you know, whatever that 100 page report said at the end of our two weeks on the ground, it would get the airtime that it needed to resolve the issue. So, um, Sounds like a consultant's dream. It is a consultant's dream. It was, uh, it's really terrific. And, it, it, you know, just seeing the, the various states of various nations in terms of the need for competencies and skills and, and um, you know, it's it's sobering but also exciting, you know, that, that people are getting on that path. And, you know, when I think about some of those countries that are renowned for being not particularly transparent, I think one of the observations I made, it, it was less about true corruption and hiding corrupt practices and more about being concerned that they were doing something wrong or seeing not being good enough at what they were doing and so not wanting to show that feeling of we're not quite on top of this to the world. So it, it was almost embarrassment rather than uh, yeah, dishonesty. That, uh, yeah, it feels a bit more like that. I don't know, embarrassment might be too strong, but just a, a, you know, an admission that they're trying to figure out what to do and, and, and transparency is kind of lower down on the list once they've kind of got a clearer sense of, of what the direction is. So given that you had this privileged position to help people work on investment problems all around the world in a wide variety of countries, what aspects of investing do you think are universal and what things change depending on your context? Um, governance? Risk? See, I knew we'd come back I to know, that. I know, I can't help it. I'm a woman with a hammer. Um, governance and um, the the risk tolerance and an, an expression of that in a uh, in a way that allows the communication between the whoever's executing that mandate and the owners of the mandate have a really rich strategic dialogue about the portfolio. It's just the 
the basic building blocks. And, and most of the issues that I saw, and this is probably a function of the early stages, was clarity around what the money's for. And, and, and you, it's very hard to get out of the blocks unless you're really, really clear. And I, you know, people get sick of me saying, you know, you need to embed your beliefs more and you need to get a clearer mission. They're kind of like, you know, we did that work five years ago. And I hate being the squeaky wheel, but th there's a there's a hurdle that you still haven't got over in terms of the absolute clarity of what this money's for and the absolute bedrock of your beliefs and how it feeds mm. in through everything that you do. And the other thing, too, is that boards are a little bit like the Little River Band. Have you heard this one before? <laughs> no. There's nobody in the Little River Band that was there at the beginning because, you know, they've swapped a drummer or a oh, guitarist nice. or whatever. So... It's still the Little River Band, but there's not one of the original band members in the Little River Band. And you get the same thing often with boards, is that people come in and they, they obviously have their own ideas and their own opinions of what's happened before them. Um, and they're also not necessarily wedded to beliefs or decisions that are embedded in the current portfolio. Yeah. So, like you say, just because you did the work five years ago doesn't mean it's not important to do it it's again It's a collective now. thing. That's right. I, I agree. Nice. So you're going to keep bringing up governance, so we better talk to you about <laughs> what it is that you do now at Willis Towers Watson. So tell us about your work on governance and organisational design. Oh, now I don't know what to say. Um, so the work, the work that we've been doing is to take a very broad definition of, of governance. So we tend to throw the word organisational effectiveness around a bit to try and get that message through because every time we say governance people think board decision making or investment committee decision making. So it's much broader than that. It's basically all of the things you need to have a clear mission and, and deliver on it. And the delivering on it is the hard, easy to measure stuff and the soft, incredibly difficult to measure and influence stuff. And increasingly the work that we're doing is on that softer stuff. I think Roger calls it, Roger Irwin calls it squidgy. It's either squidgy or squishy, and he gets grumpy because I, I used the wrong one. It's one of those two. But it, it's soft. And, you know, in an environment where you've got regulators getting increasingly concerned about protection for the end saver and low returns uh, and threats of disruption from technology and changing norms and demography and everything else, it's just become pretty high on, on most large asset owners' list to try and sort out some of those softer issues and how to make sure that there's some comparative edge in, in the way they go about making decisions. So yeah. it, that's pretty well been um, most of my focus since I've, since I've been here and again it's, I don't have a problem being a consultant, I love being a consultant. Um, and it's very rewarding. It's incredibly, uh, it's a privilege again to, to be allowed so deeply within organisations and to have those hard conversations and to, to have a, a, an organisation that is truly committed to best in class and, uh, and prepared to do the hard things as well as the easy things, the hard mm -hmm. soft things, mm -hmm. uh, to do that. Well, can you give us some examples of what these hard things might be? So there's uh, the, the, the big one, which is the um, investment culture and just being really, really clear about what an uh, investment culture that creates a comparative edge really looks like and a willingness to hold mirror, a mirror up to, to, to your face and look at those things and address those things. And they're incredibly challenging. Um, we might do a piece of work with an organisation where we've looked very closely at the investment committee, for example, um, fly on the wall in terms of what's happening in that meeting, the interactions, and we have a formal framework for assessing that, but the things that drop out of it are, are very personal um, in terms of, you know, this is the behaviour that's causing the problems. And, and, you know, the reason we focus on that so strongly is you can have spent all the money and all the time getting everything else working, but if that interface between the investment committee and the key decision makers amongst the executive mm -hmm. is not humming, then you really are wasting your time on all those other things. So it's something that is quite confronting um, and, 
you know, I'm just so incredibly impressed with the executives I see in the industry who are prepared to, to take that message and run with it. It's, you know, really quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I know you've spent some time actually quantifying what you think the risk-reward is for good governance. So I'm interested to know what the number is, but more importantly, how you got to that number. Yeah, I think the governance number is, is really the hardest one. And there is an element, I think, of Keith and Baxia putting a number on it a while back and everyone kind of repeating that same number to some extent. But what I'm perfectly clear about is it exists and it's material because we see the instances of it in terms of the value-destroying behaviour uh, as much as the value-creating behaviour versus that reference portfolio that we talked about. And the, the kinds of things that destroy it are those inconsistent decision-makings, the, knee, the knee-jerk reactions where you um, stop doing a certain thing um, for the wrong reasons, chasing past returns, um, uh, governance that's about ticking boxes rather than truly having strategic dialogues. And, it, you know, it's... Um, it's clear to most audiences that it exists and I think there's some anchoring around the number um, but you know most audiences where we put that question up will start at around 30 basis points and and, and go north from there Um, and I think often we ask the question in your organization what's it worth and so I think people are reflecting that they're at various stages of that journey Um, so there may only be 30 basis points left Um, what we do know when we put people through our formal process of uh, assessing their governance um, and we, we come up with a credit type rating for them and put them against a database, it's something like, uh, it's less than 2% get the AAA rating of, of having best in class um, governance and uh, around 7 I think, at the last look, they get the AA. Um, so it's incredibly rare and there is, um, not particularly scientifically based because the database is not big enough, but there is a correlation between those ones that do well on these things and and their performance over longer periods of time. And that, that's somewhat by design because this research involves getting those high performers together and discussing what it is that makes them great and trying to distill that into a framework. What are some of their common attributes? Well, there's a paper written in 2007, uh, Roger Irwin and, and Gordon Clark, and it talks about the 12 factors of, of good governance. Um, and it's publicly available and still probably the most cited piece of research. Um, and it's the things that you expect them to be. It's about leadership and real-time decision-making and um, a coherent risk budgeting and strong beliefs and a clear mission. But increasingly, as we do this work, best practice doesn't stay still. So that's over 10 years old now. Um, and the so two of those factors of the 12 factors are culture and leadership. And we've actually done a deeper dive on both of those as it's become increasingly important that these softer issues. So there's a full um, detailed checklist against each of those that can um, help facilitate that, that uh, governance premium. Well, thanks for that answer. We'll make sure that the paper that you cite by Clark and Irwin uh, gets added to the show notes so that people can read it. In terms of some of the institutions that you're working with, um, such as pension funds here in Australia, what are some of the biggest challenges you think that they're currently facing? I think um, there's a few um, large issues facing the industry. There always will be. and at the moment we're seeing you know, the conflation of a few things that are creating somewhat of a burning platform for change. Um, but I'll talk, I think, about one um, issue that I come across most frequently, and that is a, that courage to be self-reflecting, truly self-reflecting, rather than uh, self fulfilling, if, if for want of a better word. So instead of bringing a consultant in to genuinely challenge you, you're looking for someone to lend a name to a decision that you really want to put into the portfolio or, or whatever that practice is. And so we see this in the, in the practice and obviously our uh, mission in life. 
is to um, be truly end saver centric and client centric and so our response will be you know this doesn't look right or this needs to be addressed um, often this has been done well as well that's not it's not across the board but there's this um, I don't know this use of consultants where they're an extension of someone's team and they're there to do what they want you to do and to you know, tick boxes or, or, or something like that. And that's very much not the the framework here. Um, I know you wanted to get to the role of the asset consultant, so maybe a jump there just now. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, um, a way that the industry here has grown up and it's been a, a fabulous service from the asset consultants for the period of time that, it, you know, it's been needed. But things are changing dramatically, particularly here in Australia with the likely growth of some very large funds as the the um, group continues continues to consolidate and and Australia continues to lead the way as a sophisticated market for investments and so you know it was a matter of turning some of the tools that we use on our clients on ourselves and say well what what is our role in that and what are our comparative advantages and 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 you know what future is there for the asset consultant in this industry so we still very much um, are part of the traditional offering um, of asset consulting skills um, and, and services to sort of the smaller range. But over the recent years, those services have not been relevant to the, the more sophisticated, larger end of the market. So the idea is to, to and then there's the smaller end of the market that, uh, uh, you know, are not large enough for those services either. So the idea is to sort of broaden out the range so that we cover both of those ranges. There's a delegated service that we now offer that allows us to get um, best ideas into portfolios directly because the governance is not there to be able to do it indirectly. Uh, And so things are just, they're not happening. Um, And then at the higher end of the market um, is to focus on some of these softer issues that I talked about and offer services to clients around best-in-class practices for those areas and um, to stay relevant um, to that part of the market. So that's pretty much where we're now positioning the business across those three streams. My role is to run that sophisticated end of the market and stay relevant to an increasing portion of the market as as the market gets bigger and bigger. Um, And we have Paul Taylor and Angus O'Gorman running the other two areas that are... Um, a much larger part of our business and um, a very both very important parts of the business. Uh, I just speak lyrically about my part of the business because that's the bit that I know. Um, so it's really watching the industry change and, and making sure that um, this holding up a mirror um, continues in a constructive and positive way um, that, that clients see value in. That's a very important point you make that um, and this is something that I find myself talking about with people a lot, that they talk about superannuation and they want to know what's happening with the superannuation market. And I kind of stop them at that point at that point in the question and say, can I change your question slightly? Because there's not one superannuation market. There's, there's subgroups and what the, each subgroup needs is actually quite different. And as you point out, the what's relevant and needed by the larger funds is quite different to what's relevant and needed by the smaller funds. And that applies also to fund managers too in terms of the strategies that they offer funds. I think fund managers have to uh, take your advice and do a bit of introspection as well and, and think about the kind of strategies that they offer to the kind of funds that they're trying to market to. I would agree with that and we do have um we do do a culture assessment across all of our fund managers, and we do have some fund managers who have asked us to do the more, you know, comprehensive um, governance assessment. But because we're in the business of rating those fund managers, that that's an area that you know we we're not a part of. Um, we're focusing really on on asset owners, but that's not to say that it's not an important service for someone to be offering. I agree. Okay. We. 
We promised our listeners hard questions about investment consulting, so we're going to ask them, but not too hard, but hard. <laughs> so first question, this is something I hear a lot from fund managers. Are investment consultants gatekeepers? Well, in that spectrum that I just um, laid out, clearly not. I think there's um, a core part of the business that requires uh, investment due diligence for those clients that need it. And so, of course, that's a service that we offer and it's an incredibly valuable service. Um, But whether or not they're gatekeepers is really dependent on where you are in the industry and and what your targets are. So I, I would say no to that. Okay. Very good. So does the ownership of the investment consultant, i.e. whether it's a listed company owned by its staff or owned by its clients, matter? Does it affect the way it gives advice? I think it could do. Um, I can say that one of the reasons I was attracted to Willis Tells Watson is there's that genuine um, help the industry with change as opposed to make a dollar and I'm very familiar with that culture obviously mm-hmm. coming from a banking background and I'm sure that's you changed wouldn't have now. lasted five years if you weren't <laughs> yeah yeah longer um, you know and I, I think that's changed but certainly in those times I'm very well aware of that drive for profit and, and the need to put that first despite what you're saying about clients being first and what I can say genuinely because I wouldn't be here otherwise is that's not the case mm-hmm. um, and I think that I think that consultants have a great future because we do have that trust and we have we we value that trust and we wouldn't do anything that would jeopardize that trust because that's our currency. That's what makes us different, is that you you know, we are here genuinely for the clients. So we're part of a very large forty thousand people global organization. And I even within that I have um, the understanding and the alignment that I get measured on the success of my clients success and that doesn't mean necessarily their short-term portfolio performance but their ability to generate sustainable long-term returns that's Mm. what I get measured on so it it doesn't need to be a problem I think you can get these agency issues even in an organization that's small and, 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 and owned it's a cultural thing, it's a personal thing, it's a you know, key influencer thing. Um, so I don't think it has to matter. We were talking offline before about skin in the game and whether or not more skin in the game is needed for consultants. Do you think it is? And if so, how, how might we inject more skin in the game for consultants? I don't have that silver bullet in terms of how you do that. I, I do think it's important. I don't you know, coming from the other side of the fence, I don't like this sense that, you know, people think consultants are there to just sort of give something off the shelf and then run for the hills. It, it, you know, it, I'm deeply involved in these in these projects, and I truly, you know, their success is my success. So, you know, th- that is skin in the game, and it's as I say, it's a softer issue. Um, you know, my personal career is at at risk my the organization's reputation is at risk you know that's skin in the game we need to make sure that these things are successful Mm -hmm. okay that's an interesting answer what value do investment consultants create for their clients and i'll elaborate a little bit more on this question if most take Australian pension funds or super funds as examples, if, if most of them have similar asset allocations by and large and fund manager selection often doesn't add value if you look at the statistics of how many managers actually be the market, then what do consultants do? They hold up a mirror. They hold up a mirror and they ensure that the um, investment strategy and business strategy that clients are following makes sense for the context and the, the purpose of the fund. And it's a sounding board, uh, uh, an entity that's seen a number of different organisations globally, has been able to do research to collate what best practice looks like and can hold you to a standard that you might not hold yourself. I think there's absolutely a role for them. Mm-hmm. 
All right, I'd like to move on to a section that I've named David Swenson Says, Sue Responds. So David Swenson is the famous chief investment officer of the Yale University Endowment. And in his book, uh, Pioneering Portfolio Management, An Unconventional Approach to Institutional Investment, he's made a lot of comments about consultants, most of them not that positive. So I'm going to read out some choice quotes from Swenson's book and put Sue on the spot. So here we go. David Swenson says, Sue responds. Consulting firms maximize profits by providing identical advice to as many clients as possible. In the investment world, which demands portfolios custom-tailored to institution-specific risk and return preferences, a cookie-cutter approach fails. Straw person. I think that's a straw person. So I, I think I've answered that already. That the intention of the the advice that we give is tailored to the part of the market that that needs it. So it very much uh, working with clients to establish their context for for any advice. So okay, straw person. So you've batted that that one away very yeah. well. Let's see how you go with the next one. Interposing consultants between fund fiduciaries and external managers creates a range of problems that stem from a disconnect between the consulting firm's profit motive and the client's investment objectives. While consulting firms offer a shortcut that avoids the hard work of creating a dedicated investment operation, as is the case with many shortcuts, the end results disappoint. Again, horses for courses. So if, um, if the governance structure doesn't allow uh, the entity to make informed investment decisions on a real-time basis, then there's a role for some sort of outsource provider who's going to do a better job of that. And the key there is this trust and transparency, again, in terms of making sure the absolute alignment of that organisation with your goals. Uh, and at the other end, um, there is no interspersing of the consultant in that chain. They're there as a trusted advisor to hold that mirror up to, uh, you know, demonstrate the standards of best practice and um, and advise on the process. So again, horses for courses. Mm -hmm. I I do think, to be fair, that David Svensson is talking his book a little bit with that last <laughs> quote. He's obviously talking about his high quality investment operation and and why he doesn't need a consultant. Next quote. Selecting managers from the consultant's internally approved recommended list serves as a poor starting point for identifying managers likely to provide strong future results. No consultant who wishes to stay employed recommends a startup manager with all of the attendant organizational and investment risks. Because consultants seek to spread the costs of identifying and monitoring managers, consultants recommend established managers that have the capacity, if not the ability, to manage large pools of assets. Clients end up with bloated, fee-driven investment management businesses instead of nimble, return-oriented entrepreneurial firms. He's not holding back, no, is he? No, he's not. Not very nice of him, I, is he? Um, so here's a disclaimer. I'm not an expert in this area. I... Um, but I, my humble opinion um, on this is that these are professionals who have spent their career creating a framework for ch choosing managers that they have the highest confidence are going to outperform over the time horizon that matters to clients. So there's a pride and professionalism in that, that means that they spend an inordinate amount of time doing the investment due diligence to make sure that this is someone that they really believe is going to add value. And I think in the Australian context, yes, there needs to be capacity. There's no point recommending them if no one can actually get set um, in them. But I, I think that's, you know, it's relatively small in the Australian market. It doesn't have to be some multi-global, um, you know, minimum of a billion kind of fund. Um, so I think there's a, absolutely a, a role to play in that and, and I, I wonder sometimes again with the governance concerns of some of these smaller organisations that have their own teams choosing managers, um, 
it's pretty hard to compete with a global large team who are running the ruler over a large number of managers to, to find something and have a well-defined process to find something that makes sense um, to a very small team, often done by the, the directors of a company. To, to compete with that really doesn't make any sense to me. Again, perhaps David Svensson has an unfair advantage called the Yale Alumni Network to help him out. Mm -hmm. So we'll move on to the last one. This now is within your remit because we're talking governance here. He says, consultants express conventional views and make safe recommendations. Because consultants rarely espouse unconventional points of view, they provide more than adequate cover when dealing with investment committees. Decision makers rest comfortably knowing that a recognised consulting firm blessed their chosen investment oh, nice. strategy. So this is basically what I was referring to and Selling absolutions. Yeah. Yes, and, and, and being in the business of, of ticking a box and putting a signature on a line. And I'd, I wouldn't want to comment about whether or not that's true because that's not the business that I'm in. This is the only consultancy firm that I've worked for. Um, so... I can see the potential for that and the concern about that, but it's not it's certainly not my experience. There is very much a, a vested interest in um, ensuring that there is genuinely a best-in-class organisation. And I think, you know, those that are familiar with our work will know that they're not. It's not status quo and it's not safe. Um, it's taking those ideas from those great organisations we see around the world and saying maybe you could do this too. It's cutting edge, I would say, as opposed to safe. So thank you for being such a good sport and playing David Swenson Says Sue Responds. And uh, it's been great chatting with you. And thanks again for being such a good sport and fielding some of the tough questions. Hopefully listeners found it interesting. Sue, thank you for your time on the podcast. Thank you very much. A pleasure. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com Thank you very much.